Welcome to Season 4 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders every week to help you navigate the economic and investing landscape. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on January the 14th. We're recording today, six days before uh, the inauguration of Joe Biden and lots going on. We've seen the House of Representatives now impeach President Donald Trump for the second time, historic second time. Mitch McConnell says that that will not go to a Senate vote until after the inauguration. Meanwhile, Vice President Biden, President-elect Biden tonight will announce his new stimulus package proposal of an additional $2 trillion, $2 trillion. The recent stimulus package was only 900 and some odd billion dollars uh, a few weeks ago that was uh, eked through. We think there's going to be a $2 trillion package coming now. Uh, there is no infrastructure in this package, and they think that that's going to pass fairly handily. While this has been going on, markets have been moving higher. Dow, S&P, NASDAQ, uh, all have been recovering very, very nicely, and some making new highs here through the first of the year. The 10-year Treasury has risen in yield. The dollar has fallen a bit. Those seem stable. What is it going to mean? We go to our friend Jim Labenthal, because on the forecast, we listen to Labenthal. Welcome back, Jim. Michael, thank you so much. I'm always so happy to talk with you. Well, we're so happy to have you here. And ladies and gentlemen, Jim is a very patient man because I screwed up that introduction the first time I did it. I just had to stop and redo it. Uh, I, I'm a kind of a mess this morning. But, you know, uh, if you're feeling like a mess, it's all the more reason to have Labenthal. He can dig you out of any hole. What are you thinking now, Jim, of the markets, of what you're seeing, the beginning of this year, the violence in the capital? What does this mean to, to, to your outlook and what you're doing in portfolios? Well, let me start from the human perspective of I absolutely abhor the violence that we saw last week and that there are grave concerns are going to continue in the coming week with the inauguration. Um, that said, I place a lot of faith uh, in our police and law enforcement uh, agencies, the FBI, et cetera, to uh, get ahead of this. And I think they will. I, I, I suspect without knowing that we've seen the peak of uh, the election vitriol and violence, and it's time to move forward. Um, I'm looking forward to a new beginning. Um, now, this is also a new beginning to the year. And you've asked, what are we looking at in the markets? We're seeing a market that is at all time highs um, that shows absolutely no fear of those heights. And normally that indicates to somebody like me and probably to you, Michael, that a correction might be in the offing. Let's talk about that. A correction down 10 percent in the stock market. I have to say this adamantly. Don't try to time that, folks. Please don't say don't go to your brokers and advisors this morning and say Labenthal and Farr were talking and they see a correction and I want to take my money out of stock markets. The reason you, <laughs> you don't want to do that because we're on the cusp of a new economic expansion, a new profit cycle and a new bull market to go with it. So the best bet is to buckle your seatbelts through any short-term volatility and recognize that you're going to see record earnings this year in the S&P 500, probably well above trend growth in earnings next year, uh, and that should propel the market higher overall. So let me pause there. I mean, there's certainly more I can add to that, but please don't try to time a correction. You know, uh, Jim, 
Uh, you're you're leaning into the wind of uh, and and the advice of some very smart, uh, very famous guys that we've been hearing uh, from lately. Uh, uh, Jeff Gundlach has uh, suggested that we've got a real bubble. My friend Doug Cass is talking about a real bubble. Lots of folks say that this market looks just as bubbly as Bitcoin, which I find to kind of be a ridiculous comment because. Bitcoin, actually, folks, is nothing but bubble in, in many ways. By definition, um, it's a fiat currency without a fiat. And um, uh, so, uh, Jim, people are looking for this big bubble and, and saying scary things. You're not you're saying 10 percent. And actually, I agree with you. Why? Why? What's the distinction here? What are they missing? Uh, two things. And by the way, I love when you take what I say and you just take it exactly in the direction that we should go. Because let's talk <laughs> about let's talk about bubbles. And that's the word that you used. Um, first off, in the market overall, the reason I don't think that you're going to get more than 10 percent of a correction is simply the power of the Fed. Low interest rates, a ton of liquidity. We've seen it twice in the last four months. The markets went down 9 percent, bounced right off of it because there's a lot of cash on the sidelines that doesn't like 0% on cash or 1% on bonds. So when they see a sale on stocks, they jump in. Now, what sectors of the But Jim, market- Jim, hang on, hang on. I mean, the last 908 or $12 billion that was just approved by Congress has not yet made its way into the economy. It hasn't been shoved out the doors yet. And within the next couple of weeks, we're hearing about another two trillion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you if you want to just count the uh, let's round up among friends here, shall we? That that nine hundred and some odd billion. Let's call it a trillion. Just let's just round up. And we've got two trillion more coming. So that one trillion. Do the math here with me, Labenthal. Plus the other two trillion is. $3 trillion. We're going to take $3 trillion over the next quarter and jam it into a $20 trillion economy. Think about that. We're going to take 15% of GDP and shove it back in as stimulus. What do you think is going to happen? I can shove a billion dollars into a dead horse and get him to take a lap around the track. I mean, there's a cause <laughs> and effect here. I mean, it, what do you think is going to You, you think it's going to shrink? You know How's it going to shrink? How does it shrink when you shove? I mean, God. Michael, we're, we're men of a certain age. We know exactly what's going to happen. You're going to get inflation. You're going to get higher interest rates. But the key thing that even you and I don't know is when is that going to happen? And I no suspect, idea. Yeah, and I suspect that we've still got a heck of a long runway. Now, that may sound like a dangerous game to play of, you know, I'll be able to get off of the tracks before this locomotive of inflation and interest rates runs over me. But I do think you've got plenty of time before you've got to worry about that. You've still got 10 million people, unfortunately, unemployed. I do want to go back to your earlier question, though. To me, this is important, the bubble in the stock market. I've got to say, you you look at value in cyclical stocks, I don't see a bubble there. You look at yes. Garpy stocks, growth at a reasonable price. And by this, I mean Google. I mean Apple. I mean Facebook. The big tech juggernauts that are – Wait a minute. Um, Those stocks are at reasonable prices? I'm going to say yes. Now, that may be controversial, but in the high 20s as a forward multiple, meaning this year's multiple, I can live with that. Where there is a bubble – and where I think we should discuss are the software stocks, are the IPO stocks, are Tesla. And, you know, here's your provocative headline uh, for, for this uh, version of Farcast. Labenthal will come out and say it. Tesla is a bubble. 
Uh, per car <laughs> produced, Tesla is worth one and a quarter million dollars. General Motors per car produced is worth $9,000. I can go through all of these numbers and tell you that Tesla is a bubble. But the point is this. It, that doesn't tell us when it comes down. It just tells you avoid it. There are sectors of this stock market to be avoided. Roku, that beloved TV stock yes. uh, that, that I've had so much fun with, and you know on CNBC I've had fun with it. That is absolutely a bubble. There's no justification for these stocks that sell at 40 times sales, 25 times sales. You cannot justify that. It's speculation. And I'm an investor. You're an investor. I look afar at, at speculators and say, glad you're making money, but you're not going to find me in that camp. You know, I wrote an article for CNBC a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my title was Investing in Tesla and Other Stupidly Expensive Stocks. And uh, it was on there, number one, you know, the top page for CNBC for about a week. And all I said was the stuff 700 times earnings. Without tax credits, they have no earnings. Without uh, a, a tax, environmental tax credits, Tesla has no earnings. This morning, they've got a huge recall out. Um, you know, it, it's just stupidly expensive. And I also said it could go significantly higher. But ladies and gentlemen, you can find that article still if you want to take a look and search Tesla and FAR on CNBC. Um, the hate mail I got, Jim, was amazing. I got all kinds of hate mail and tweets and all of this other stuff of these people who wanted to skewer me for for suggesting for for, for the, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 they couldn't believe that I would suggest that Tesla was was uh, all too expensive because clearly they owned it and they didn't want anybody saying anything nasty about it. Well, tough. And by the way, it doesn't have earnings other than those environmental tax credits. Go back to what Labenthal was mentioning, though, folks. If you look at, uh, he mentioned Google. Google's earnings growth for the next five years is estimated at about 15 percent. Uh, Facebook, he mentioned, 16 percent. I mean, if you look at Apple, even 11 percent versus an S&P that's supposed to grow earnings over the next five at about 7 percent, you've got far above trend earnings growth supporting some of those higher multiples. And by the way, all of those three companies have a ton of cash on their balance sheets, too. Very secure. So they don't all look alike, do they, Jim? No, but <clears throat> I'm glad you brought up those growth rates because it immediately makes me think in my mind of the most important metric for me, which is the price to earnings multiple to the growth rate or the peg ratio. Uh, now, this this metric may seem a little bit arcane to some of our viewers, but it shouldn't. It's a very simple measure of what price are you paying for growth. So if uh, if Google, for instance, is uh, trading at 30 times earnings round numbers and growing its earnings at 15 percent, you take that 30 multiple, you put it over 15 and you get a peg ratio of 2.0. That's roughly 1.8 to 2.0 is roughly where Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft are all going to land out. And I'm going to tell you that 1.8 to 2.0 is absolutely fine. Sure, I'd love it if it was 1.5, but you normally get that when there's a problem with a company. If there's a company then, Jim, just to follow your math, that's trading at 21 times earnings with a 7% growth rate, that stock at 21 times earnings with only a 7% growth rate would have a peg ratio of three. And that would mean that that stock was more expensive to you than even a Google at 30 times earnings because it has a 15% growth rate. It's only two. It has a peg of two. Is that right? 
That's what you've got it exactly right. And what a, uh, if what, you're wondering where's the sort of where's the cutoff where you start to worry, well, it, it, you know, it, it isn't written in stone. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Amazon, I believe, has a 4.3 peg ratio, but yes. we know that their earnings are depressed by how much R and D spending and how much investing back in the business that we go. That said, if I see companies trading at peg ratios of one and a half to two times, even a little bit above two times, I'm telling you, that's fair. That's absolutely fine. There's no alarm bell going off there. You know, Harry and I are having hats made that say, listen to Labenthal. Uh, we, we're going to need bigger hats, Harry. We need learn from Labenthal now across the back because this is very important. I've followed peg ratios all my life uh, as a professional investor. I think very, very important. Jim, you're not going to believe this. We are about out of time here. Will you tell us then what your expectations are for the first quarter here and then maybe year? You said maybe we're going to have a 10 percent correction. Uh, we do that, by the way, January, February. Those are the times when the market has historically corrected and given us a bit of a pullback. Uh, but get, talk us through that for a second, will you? And then I hope you're going to come back and talk to us again soon. I always I always will come back. And you say, uh, listen to Labenthal. I say follow far. Uh, there you go. <laughs> that's my hat. Um, listen, I, I started off talking about the correction. I want to repeat the most important mantra here, which is don't try to time it, folks. You've got to get two decisions right, when to get out and when to get back in. And along the way, you could miss the start uh, of, of a, what should be at least a two, probably three-year profit cycle with great growth, uh, both in earnings and share prices. But that said, first quarter, we should see some volatility here. I mean, the virus numbers are horrible. Um, that's going to have an effect, uh, a depressing effect on economic figures. But let's get these vaccines rolled out. I think we will, obviously, a lot slower than expected. You get those vaccines rolled out, you start opening those dormant sectors of the economy, notably travel and leisure, and those earnings start coming in, adding to earnings which already are pretty good. The fourth quarter earnings season is going to be down a little bit year over year, but showing good signs of growth. So get through the first quarter. Maybe we get a correction. Maybe we don't. But make sure that you're invested for the second half of this year and for 2022. That's going to be a great buy and hold period. And if you're buying now to hold through those periods, you'll do fine. You'll do fine. Uh Jim Labenthal is a partner at Serity Partners. He is a contributor, a must-listen-to guy on CNBC, my good friend. And remember that other thing that he said, don't, 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 Tesla's expensive as hell, folks. There's just no other, way to, no other way to look at it. Jim, thanks for being with us. And a couple of stock analysts agreeing. Michael, yeah, I love being with you. I say it again, follow far. There we go. Listen to Labenthal. When we come back, we're going to listen to Mahaffey, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. They study the presidency and Congress, so you don't have to. How about that? We're going to be right back. Certainly a lot to talk about going on in Washington with Dan. Please stay with us. We have an upcoming special opportunity for our Farcast listeners. The Far Miller and Washington Client Lunch will be taking place virtually on Monday, January 25th at 12.15 Eastern Time. Every year, Michael Farr hosts a breakfast in Washington, D.C. and a lunch in Naples, Florida for our clients, where Michael delivers a presentation on the economic and investing outlook. This year, the presentation will be offered over the web via Zoom, and we have a limited number of spaces available for our Farcast listeners. 
Past presentations have included in 2007, the rising risk of recession due to stress in the financial system, and last year, the possibility of a worldwide shock to the economy due to the pandemic. If you would like to attend the webinar, please email me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We expect to only have a few dozen spaces available for our listeners, so please reach out soon if you are interested, and I will reserve your place. Thanks for joining us on the Farcast, and now back to the show and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining us now, our senior political analyst from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, Dan Mahaffey. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks, Michael. Good to be back. What a week. What a week, brother. You know, uh, I don't know that I have ever quoted the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, but I, it seems very appropriate now in her dying moments, if you will remember, hearken back with me too. What a world, what a world, what a world. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you know, there there might be smoke in the sky over Washington that says surrender Donald, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're almost there yet. Um, well, certainly a lot of people, including the Congress of the United States, voted yesterday uh, surrender Donald. Uh, the Senate of the United States, according to Leader McConnell, uh, are not going to follow that up and not going to deal with that until after uh, President-elect Biden becomes President Biden. What happens then, Dan? So we've got a question of whether or not, uh, now that we have these uh, this impeachment passed, an unprecedented second impeachment of a president, uh, now this goes to the Senate. And we know Mitch McConnell's not going to move with any alacrity on this. Uh, they'll be in session again on the 19th. The president will be in office for less than 24 hours at that point. Uh, and uh, what will you know? What McConnell's saying is he wants to look ahead to the the Biden transition. They'll handle a, a a trial in due course. But we haven't even gotten to the constitutional question of whether a a former president can be impeached, and that will be a a question the Senate will take up. But it will also be some process that uh, I think some Republicans can hide from if they want to. You know, as McConnell suggests, get this impeachment on the record. Uh, but also move past this uh, and try and move on to 2022. That's what the, uh, the the elites at least want to do in the Senate. Now, the, the base is a different story. But uh, look, it's the it's in a sense, the House is happy because they've got this on the record that you can't incite insurrection against a, another branch of government, that there will be consequences for that. But beyond that, you know, the, the, the true problem with the president is going to be uh, his post-presidency, his finances, and as well as for Mitch McConnell, let's not forget that so many of these decisions right now also uh, uh, reflect his concerns about the current fundraising boycott from a lot of major companies. Would you just give us a quick primer on, on this process, on what impeachment means? The House votes to impeach. And Correct. then and, 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 and then the Senate has a trial. What uh, tell us why? I mean, we understand high crimes and misdemeanors and we understand a clear and present danger to the U.S. as Nancy Pelosi has been talking about. Um, the, the House can't do anything else to remove the president. It now has to go to the Senate. And then what right. happens? Well, the Senate will hold its trial again, uh, just as we had at the beginning of the year. Uh, excuse me, beginning of 2020, uh, 
Chief Justice Roberts will preside over a trial in the Senate. The the senators, in a sense, are the the jury. Managers from the House will act as the prosecution. The the president, uh, or by this point, a former president, will uh, decide whether he wants to have an attorney, how an attorney will represent him there. Uh, but again, the Constitution says that you can impeach the president of the United States. There are uh, precedents of other office holders who were impeached after they'd resigned or left office, but never the president. So that's a that's a question of how we'll do it. But then, look, they could the Senate then votes by you know they need two thirds to remove a president from office. But if he's out, that's already uh, a moot point. The Constitution right. also says that you can bar someone from further office. But again, is that a impeachment that can take place once the president has left? Because it's it's separate from the uh, criminal and civil procedures that someone is also beholden to. It's a it's a whole political structure. Well, it, it yeah, it, it, it kind of feels like it, it loses its teeth once the president is no right. longer there. And you wonder why we're going to take the Senate's time at this point if the guy's already gone and the point is to get him gone. But uh, the biggest I, thing would be to keep him out. And that's the, the question is, if even if you haven't removed him from office, could the Senate vote to bar him from further office holding? Um, there have been rumors that the president, given his legal challenges that are coming up, that there are civil cases that are getting already getting ready to be filed against him uh, on the 21st after he is no when he's no longer president. Um, it, it, there have been rumors that uh, he would uh, strike a deal with Vice President Pence, uh, resign prior to the uh, prior to the inauguration uh, uh, and Vice President Pence would pardon him and his family and that uh, uh, that leverage of his family might actually get the president's attention and have him do something like that. Any chance, Dan, are you hearing these rumors? I'm hearing those rumors. I'm also hearing the, the counter rumors that the, the president would see a pardon like that as some admission of wrongdoing. And, and he still sees what he'd done as, uh, as you know, totally perfect, as he often says. Uh, the the other factors in that are that, you know, the questions of, you know, simply does he want to hand over the presidency to Pence at this point? Pre-January 6th, there would have been plenty of trust for that kind of handoff to take place. I'm not so sure about that, given the the breakdown in the relationship between the president and the vice president since the insurrection. Let's go with the new agenda now. Uh, fast forward here, and we have a new Biden administration. There are a number of nominations for his cabinet. How long will it take to get his cabinet in place, number one? Then we have a Biden agenda coming up. He's talked about tax hikes and an, any number of other things, going to repeal a number of uh, the uh, regulations or and reimpose some of the regulations that the Trump administration uh, did away with. And as of this evening at 715 from Wilmington, Delaware, we're going to hear his proposal for a new two trillion dollar stimulus package. So walk us through a little bit about what can get done with a 50 50 Senate and a modest majority in the House of Representatives. Well, It'll, it'll have to be carefully crafted. A lot of it, as you described, regulatory, executive powers, executive orders. Uh, certainly it helps having the Senate in their favor to move their nominations forward. 
Uh, although, surprisingly, given the, the tenor of our politics, Biden will be one of the first presidents to not have his Secretary of Defense, uh, Homeland Security, those types of people uh, pretty ready to go, if not, appro uh, not approved before his inauguration. That had been something that had been done to get those important positions filled. I still think they'll be able to move quickly on the, on the non-controversial ones and those, those major security roles. The, the big plan, though, is beyond that, the stimulus, as you described, but it, it's COVID, COVID, COVID. They see addressing this pandemic, getting the vaccination rollout, uh, holding up the economy with that stimulus while that goes on, moving money to states and localities. And I think they, they want to chart a course, they agree, that will be left, at least in spending, to the left of how Obama and Clinton approached it, because they, uh, you know, the the theories and the, the thoughts within the administration and the economic team are that the, the price of doing too little right now is more than the cost of spending too much in the long term. Well, it's going to be remarkable. We're getting ready to put 15 percent of our GDP. We're going to create that in debt and new money, but particularly more debt. Uh, the last $908 billion in stimulus, it looks like, is going to be met with an additional $2 trillion in stimulus. I ask our listeners to round up with me to $3 trillion in our first segment there with Labenthal. But that's 15% of overall GDP is going to be created, added onto the debt. $3 trillion in debt in one quarter are going to be added. And then uh, we're going to shove that into a $20 trillion GDP. That's got to lead to some sort of expansion, whether you like it or not. Yeah. You, you, you uh, can't keep shoving air into the balloon and not expect it to expand. Right. And it's juicing it, and it's really, again, the idea of how much can you keep households, small businesses, and others, try and still keep them afloat until we are vaccinated and returning to normal. And that's that's part of it. It's part of shoring up the, the state finances. These are, you know, these are the priorities that they've wanted to move through. Again, we talk $2 trillion. Let's see how Rob Portman, Joe Manchin— Kirsten Cinema. Let's see how moderate senators feel about this ultimate top line price tag. Uh, look, it's got another round of the the $2,000 checks in there. Their economic populism is popular on both sides right now, though. Taxes are going to go up. Uh, do you think, Dan, uh, with uh, uh, President Biden? Look, I think they want to move taxes up. They know it's trickier with a with the narrow Senate majority they have. I think they will. My hunch is that the the economic picture gives them an excuse to hold off any tax hikes if they, if they want to do it. Perhaps after the midterms, even that's one thing. I think the the sense is that they you know everyone's looking to 2022, and I think the Biden administration feels that they need to show that that they're that there's action, that there's government programs that help is getting to people. That's their best chances for 2022 is to do that. So the economic situation would hold off on a broader tax package. Now, do they start to look at things like estate tax? Do they look at capital gains adjustments? And I think there's a team that will say, look, the, the consensus on estate tax is perhaps very different from where we are in capital gains, given how that would infect investment. You know, we want to keep the economy going. There will be different arguments on that. My hunch is that the tax stuff is pushed off at least for a year or two, uh, given the, the 
one, that they can point it to the economic situation as an issue, and two, not wanting to, to risk their, their, their coalition going into 2022. You mean the midterm elections coming into 2022? They want to tread very gently to make sure Correct. they keep their seats and keep the at least 50 seats in the Senate Correct. and their small... Uh, yep, yeah, that makes sense. So they're, they're, they're already playing chess there. How long do you think till the first, uh, uh, first candidate... Uh, for <laughs> for 20, uh, 2025 uh, will announce for the presidency. Well, well, I'm not holding off on uh, Donald Trump announcing when he's you know when he's leaving on the 19th. You know he can't tweet it out now, but uh, I I could see him still wanting to go along. Uh, you know, official announcements, I, I would give it a couple months, but you, you've already, look, that's why Cruz and Hawley played their game a week ago. This is, the, the chess is already already going. Dan, I'm going to ask you an unfair question now, and your insights are always so helpful uh, to, to me and to all of our listeners. When will all of this mind-numbing noise Settled down. I mean, do, are 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 we getting ready to enter? I'm hoping and praying a more normal phase of political rhetoric and noise. Will it ever get back to the to the you know nice days of of Carter and Reagan when you know the meanest thing they said was "There he goes again." <laughs> I I hope so. I think we can start to return to that within the Beltway. If the you know the the tenor of the politicians we that are covered will change, maybe that will change the media. I still worry. Look, we we saw people storm the Capitol inspired by a lie that they read on social media, and that's not going away. The toothpaste cannot be put back in the tube when it comes to the impact that that conspiracy theories, the the threat we have of of domestic terrorist groups now. That is going to be a, a, a new noise I'm afraid we're going to have to deal with for, for the foreseeable future, uh, given the how pernicious this, this big lie uh, about this election, about the, the changing shape of American society, how these things are affecting people's perceptions. That I continue to worry about moving forward. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and the senior political analyst on the Farcast. Dan, thanks so much. We'll be back next week right after the inauguration, see how it all goes and see how all of that's going to figure in and matter as we try to interpret Wall Street, Washington, and the world right here on the Farcast. Coming up, Tony Fratto from Hamilton Place Strategies. Remember, he was economic advisor and press secretary to George Bush, one of the brightest guys and I think most insightful voices in Washington. What's this mean for the economy? And how about the inside Washington political landscape when we come back on the Farcast? The Farcast is sponsored in part by Positano Restaurante in Bethesda, Maryland, 4940 Fairmont Avenue. Positano Restaurant, great Italian food. And now, back to the show, and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. We are back 
with the great Tony Fratto here for segment three on the Farcast, managing partner at Hamilton Place Strategies. He was, of course, deputy assistant to the president, deputy press secretary for George Bush, uh, in charge of uh, uh, economic policy in various administrations and positions, a Washington insider, uh, also worked in the Treasury Department, one of the brightest guys we ever get to talk to, absolutely dialed in in Washington. And by the way, just truly one of the nicest guys you're going to meet in Washington. Tony, welcome back. Thank you, Michael. It's, uh, I, I, you, you know, if, if anybody who introduces me for anything, yours are my favorite introductions <laughs> well, by far. Um, it's not close. You know, your mother gave me a list, and I and I just read it. So there we go. Uh, I meant every. It makes it, I, I, it, makes it hard everywhere. for me to say. Yeah, it makes it hard for me to say I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I don't know is the only answer. But you know, you're one of the great guys in Washington who will say I don't know, and all of our listeners appreciate that. Uh, Tony, as I look at what's been going on in Washington over the last week, I find myself saying I don't know very frequently. I looked at what happened in the Capitol, and and I was really discouraged, Tony. You know, I'm a lifelong Washingtonian. I'm a fifth-generation Washingtonian. My great-grandfather was killed in the collapse of the Knickerbocker Theater. That wow. was as a result of a snowstorm. I had an aunt there in the Knickerbocker Theater uh, during that collapse. She was able to crawl out on a beam and was able to survive. My great-grandfather was not. But this is old Washington inside baseball stuff, but it goes back a long way. And I, I went to high school just blocks from the U.S. Capitol. I went to a Jesuit high school called Gonzaga. Yeah. It's one of the oldest schools in the country. And I, I had a vision of Washington in the United States that was actually crushed last Wednesday, and it's been affecting me. Um, how has America been changed, and where are we now with this new coming, uh, incoming administration, Tony? Well, you know, just on, on the note on Washington, Michael is, you know, I've I mean, sort of been adopted, uh, you know, uh, Washington. It's one, it's one of my hometowns. You know, I'm, I'm always proud to talk about my. Um, you know, roots in Pittsburgh and still have a house back in Pittsburgh, but spent, you know, most of 30 years professionally working in, in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and, and we, and we love you. We love you, but you're still new. You, okay. I, I mean, know it. I know. I, yeah, okay. We love you, but you're still new. Yeah. I feel I'm, like I'm, I'm, I'm like an old timer for, for all the transients <laughs> in D.C. though. That's I, true. I always Absolutely. thought about when I, yeah, when I, yeah, when I meet an old, uh, when I meet a, you know, someone with roots in, in D.C., it's really nice. I uh, love, love to, love to, I'm going to pick your brain on the Knickerbocker Hotel. Theater, but but look, so uh, I think all of us who, you know, but, but those of us who came from elsewhere to come to Washington came with an idea about the country and that city and the government. And, you know, I worked in uh, in the House and Senate and uh, before, you know, before moving on to the uh, to the Treasury and the White House and. You know, there's a reverence for it. There's a, you know, that, that building, it's, you know, I traveled around the world, especially when I was at the Treasury Department, you know, travel around the world and, and, and uh, talk about our institutions and, um, you know, the, you know, how we, how we rely on um, uh, this belief in, the, you know, the peaceful transition of transfer of power on uh, the authority, you know, on how the, how the government uh, works and the branches of government work. And we would brag on them. I mean, countries would ask us, like, how do you do this? Like, how do you get people to accept it? 
you know, because if you don't have that tradition, it's hard to accept. Right. And we are proud of it. And that Capitol Dome and that Capitol building is an iconic symbol for the world for a couple centuries of the commitment to, uh, to democratic government and peaceful transfers of, uh, of power. This is an important thing and a model. This what, like, that is the shining city on the hill that really is the, you know, the beacon for so many countries around the world. So to have it defaced and have our, you know, the, the faith in our election system, uh, you know, so eroded in, in this, you know, this period of time has been incredibly dispiriting. And so, you know, so where are we? You know, we're, I think we're tattered, you know, we're strained, we're stressed. I think we've been brought to the, you know, to the, uh, to the edges of uh, the constraints of our, uh, you know, constitution and, and, uh, and democratic principles. The thing we can say is that they've held, you know. Yes, yes, right? there's In great the news end. there, isn't there? That's great news. Yeah. They were tested uh, and they should not have been tested. It didn't need to be tested. This, it was disgraceful to test them in the way that uh, that this happened. But we should, uh, you know, we should be proud that they held. You know, the the courts held. The you know states uh, and their systems. The Constitution held. was upheld, and the and our elected representatives at two in the morning came together in, in in a very dangerous situation, and they they upheld their oaths to the Constitution. No, that's that's uh, it was it was that's an amazing moment. That's the positive that I can yeah. That's the positive yeah. that I can take out of it. At the same time, we've got a lot of rebuilding and a lot of work to do with uh, with uh, you know with trust uh, in in government, in our institutions, and in the people that are running, uh, uh, you know, running these institutions. Tony, let's uh, talk for a second about the economy. Uh, Vice President Biden at 7.15 this evening is supposed to announce his proposed new stimulus package. We're hearing it's going to be close to $2 trillion. That's on top of $908 billion a couple of weeks ago. We're seeing $3 trillion. You're an economist, Tony, $3 trillion shoved into a $20 trillion economy. That's on top of almost $7 trillion of expansion, both Fed and stimulus. Last year, the national debt gets up to over $30 trillion in short order here. What does this mean for the economy? Uh, what does this mean for the people who uh, support modern monetary theory that says you can have mm -hmm. all the debt you want as long as the Fed keeps interest rates low? Well, I think, uh, you know, you know, in some ways we're going to test those theories, right? Uh, yes, I think what, we are. Yeah. So what does it mean? You know, what does it mean for the, uh, you know, for the future, uh, you know, for the, or for, I'm sorry, for the near term for the economy is, uh, you know, we've got, um, we're going to see growth this year. Like, you know, I mean, the, the, we did need stimulus, you know, the way I picture this of, you know, how companies are dealing how the economy is dealing with COVID is not even just stimulus, but I feel like we have needed the the uh, the, the analogy I've used is like we, you know we need a bridge, right? We need a bridge to the other side. That other side is when we have a vaccine. Now, like we have the vaccine, the vaccine is coming, and we should be able to return to normal. Now, we have a we had a gap in the bridge, unfortunately, you know, uh, like, the, the, you know, if you were going to do some things to sustain the economy to this next period, it really ought to have been done and probably would not have had to have been so big had it been done. Absolutely. In, right. Back in September. And Absolutely. hundred percent. Right? right. Absolutely. So, 
you know, so you nothing is free, you know, and so you're paying for the damage that was caused in this period. Also, you also just have it un, you know, just the the, the, uh, the economy is uneven right now. You know, um, you and I are, are able to work. You know, we're in our homes right now. Uh, we're able to work. We're able to support our clients. We're able to you know pay attention to things and keep billing and invoicing and all the stuff that we do. You know, we have uh, diff- we've changed the mix of things that we can spend on. You know, yep, so we don't yep. go to the movie, we don't go to the show, but we stream the movie and we stream the show. And uh, you know, there are, you know restaurants maybe we're doing more takeout than eat in. Uh, you know, so we can change our things. Brian and Adele, by the way, Brian is the UPS guy who comes to the house every day, and Adele <laughs> is the FedEx lady who comes to my house every day. I think we're going to set a place for him at Thanksgiving. I mean, I you see should. these people more. I see him more than I see my family. You know. <laughs> you know, I was saying that uh, I, I, I used to be um, I used to be so excited when a package came. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, there's a package, you know, and you go rush down to get the package. Now packages come and, you, you, you know, sometimes they'll sit for a day before anyone opens them to find out, you know, what's in it. It's not you don't have the same excitement. But that transit, that transformation in the economy. Right. I mean, shops so are shopping has changed, you know. Uh, yeah. It, it's you know some of the, some of these things have been accelerated, but what that has done in these you know in, whenever there's a transition in the economy is you have losers you know so lots of restaurants are losers lots of lock-in retail shops are uh, are losers and we needed to bring you know we needed to protect them going uh, you know to get uh, to get to the other side of the bridge and and to the other the other bank. Well, okay, but Tony, please, God, tell me that another two trillion dollars is going to finish your damn bridge. I'm, I'm, I mean, I've it's, been waiting for your bridge. I mean, God, this is enough, isn't it? Please. It's, it's a, it's, it's a lot. I don't, I don't think you know. Again, if we could target, God, you know, if we could target, if we could do the things that, um, uh, that you know, that would truly help those parts of the population get back to economic activity, uh, that's what we ought to be doing. Two trillion dollars is probably it's it's you know, it's probably too much, um, you know it's probably yes. too much. I don't know what it's hard to say what the right number is going to be uh, because you know and we're going to learn some things over the next couple months uh, as um, as vaccine uh, distribution accelerates yes. and it is yes. accelerating and. You know, I would get you know disappointed sometimes thinking, like looking at the pace of uh, vaccine distribution and think, well, I, I, you know, we all project the, the world from ourselves. You know, so when will I get back to normal economic activity? Yes, yes. You know, I'm like I'm I'm probably a couple months away from getting a vaccine. Yeah, so am I. Yeah. So like we're, you know, so we've got a couple months before we're really there and feel, you know, free to do all the things that we, that we used to do. So that's, you know, that's going to, you know, that's going to take some time, but I do think other people are going to move a lot more quickly than we do. Yeah. There's going to be, we've, we saw it even with no vaccine, the pressure to get back to normalcy. Um, Once you've taken out and protected the most vulnerable classes of people, you know, the, the elderly and healthcare workers, um, you know, people are going to really start, you know, wanting to come back uh, and um, uh, and getting back to, you know, to normal activity. It's probably going to happen quicker than than we think. You know, I think we're going to so, be in baseball. We're going to be in baseball stadiums. 
Uh, God, that will be so wonderful, and and what a welcome relief to feel normal again. Uh, Tony, we're 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 out of time, but this is too good. I'm going to keep going. Uh, I I have a couple of more questions. Um, as an economist, we get to thirty trillion dollars in debt. When does that matter economically, and will that act as an economic headwind at some point? Um, it's when that, you know, when we do see interest rates, uh, you know, start to move. I mean, there's a case to be made. You know, I am not a, a you know, a, a MMT guy, right? Like Modern I, I, monetary I, theory, ladies and yeah, gentlemen. Yeah. Nor am I. I think it's hogwash. Yeah, it's hogwash. It, 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 it's 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 uh, it's it's cuckoo. My mother, my mother would be so proud of me for saying hogwash as opposed to what <laughs> I was thinking. <laughs> uh, my mother would be proud of you too. <laughs> but uh, look, but th there, look, there is a case to be made that um, you know. Over the past 20 years, we probably could have borrowed more, right? I mean, like we, there were there were lots of fears about what the limit is for, uh, for U.S. borrowing for the capacity for the world to absorb U.S. debt, right? That's really what we're talking about: is what is the capacity of the world to absorb U.S. treasuries um, before they start demanding a premium on the yield. Right. Like that's. Yes, that's it. That's the whole question. That's the whole question. We know that it would the 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 absorbed the absorption, you know, window or, or, or envelope is bigger than we thought it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Right. It's obviously bigger. Yes. That doesn't yes, mean, yeah. well, that doesn't mean Fed, it's unlimited. What is the Fed the second largest holder now of U.S. debt? Well, that's that's so you're, you're finishing my story. Right. Is that. The Fed is taking up some of that, is absorbing uh, some of that. They can't and ought not do that forever. For so, the, but what we're saying, Tony, is that the government is buying the government's debt, and that's yeah. how we're keeping the rates low. Well, there's a plan. We, it, but, that, but that's not sustainable, right? Why? And see, the MMTers say it's sustainable. Why isn't it sustainable? Because we're we're still putting the majority of debt uh, out in, in into the public, right? Like. So, like, you're still putting the majority of debt out into the public. They can't buy 100% of the debt. No, well, uh, I mean, I, that's, uh, I don't think they can, no. And at some point, you know, you, you, this inflation has to take hold. How many more dollars can they print to buy the debt? They're create dollars at the Federal Reserve. It's a very strange, it's very strange the way money gets created at the Fed to buy this stuff. That's true. But look, we're going to the the, uh, the market will tell us, you know, uh, like okay. we will get price signals on this. We're either going to see inflation uh, and or we're going to see, um, you know, we're going to see pressure on yields. That'll tell the story for us. Tony Fratto sounds fairly bullish, at least for 2021 with expansion and growth. I've got one final question, Tony. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just read a survey that says 67 percent of Republicans will never trust the outcome of another election ever again. 67% will never trust the outcome of another election again. What does that mean to you and what does it mean for future elections? Well, they'll trust the next election they win, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, that's an excellent point. I think that yeah. says it all. As long as their guy wins, they'll trust the results. Yes, yeah. I'm not. Ha I'm not happy about that. I don't, I don't like the tribal, partisan, uh, you know, differing views on uh, on, the, on basic, you know, uh, uh, institutions of democracy. I think that's unhealthy for our society. And what we need to see are both parties out there. You know, look, you know. Democrats questioned um, elections in the past. They they questioned elections in, you know, Georgia and other places, um, right. uh, and told some of the same stories. Republicans did it on steroids this time, and with the president and his uh, bullhorn uh, that you know really damaged faith and uh, in our uh, in our election systems. That's a, that's a lot of damage. Uh, and we're going to need the parties themselves and officials in these parties to come back and start, uh, you know, telling the truth about uh, about our elections. I think Chris Krebs, um, uh, you know, who was, you know, was overseeing yes. the, uh, the safety of our elections. It came out and said this was the most secure election in history. I think he's right. And uh, and we need, you know, once we get past this period, we need officials from both parties out there telling and retelling. Uh, the truth that uh, you know our elections are fair and and sound and uh, uh, and go win them and lose them however you're going to do it you know go win them go fight them but the system is sound. Tony Fratto, managing partner at Hamilton Place Strategies, uh, one of the brightest guys you're going to talk to in Washington. Thanks for being on the Farcast, Tony. We really always a pleasure. It. Always really a pleasure. Thank it. you, Michael. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another week for us on The Farcast. We will be back again next week to try and bring insights from Washington, Wall Street, and the world here on The Farcast. Please share us on social media. We really appreciate it. From Naples, Florida, I'm Michael Farr. Have a great week. Thank you for listening in to this week's edition of The Farcast. And a special thanks to Michael's guests, Dan Mahaffey, Jim Labenthal, and Tony Frado. We love hearing from you, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you might have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll be back with you next week with the Farcast, bringing you insight into Wall Street, Washington, and the world.